Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Green Minds podcast. I'm Moritz, and today I've got Todd Smith, the co-founder of Safe Landing, an organization by aviation workers for more sustainability in the industry with me. Being responsible for roughly 3% to 4% of global greenhouse gas emissions, the decarbonization of the sector is crucial to meet global warming targets. However, at the same time, this transition needs to be managed in a socially just way that doesn't make aviation a mobility option that is reserved for the high net worth individuals. Today, air travel is mostly a privilege of the global north already, but Todd will tell us all about that and what his vision for the industry is in this episode. Welcome, everybody. I have Todd with me here. Todd is the founder of Safe Landing as well as a former airline pilot. But before we dive deep into Safe Landing and what you guys are doing, uh, let's maybe take a step back, Todd, and uh, talk a bit more about how you actually got into sustainability, especially after flying for the aviation sector yourself. Um, so how did this all come about? Sure. Thanks, Maltes, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, I guess my dad was a, a bricklayer. I grew up in a very working class uh, environment out in the suburbs of East London in Essex. And, um, you know, he always said to me to do a job that you'd enjoy. And when I was five years old, he took me to see an air show at South End. And um, I was inspired by a Royal Air Force display team called the Red Arrows, flying a formation of nine aircraft, almost wingtip to wingtip. And, you know, I really thought, well, if I did that job, then, you know, that, that, that looks like good fun, you know. So I really set my heart on becoming a pilot of that young age. And I did want to go into the military. I was quite sort of influenced by the the Hollywood films like Top Gun and, yeah. you know, sort of romanticizing <laughs> of, of a military industrial complex. And so, yeah, I went through, um, had my first flying lesson at 12 years old for a birthday present. And by 14, I was doing advanced aerobatics with Royal Air Force instructors oh, wow. in the air cadets. So... Um, yeah, it was a wild ride and as a young sort of teenager, I was um, really sort of on that on that path. But um, but yeah, I think I had I had undiagnosed ADHD actually at the time and um, academically I really struggled and I wasn't really getting the best from the education system for me. And I started to fail at my GCSEs and sort of the, the, the dream of sort of getting six straight A's and, and going into the Royal Air Force become a, yeah. a distant fantasy. And that was really tough for me, you know, um, so I. I bounced around from job to job and I was working on a, I was doing an electrical apprenticeship at one point and, you know, really just feeling like a massive failure, if I'm honest. And um, anyway, just after 2008, <laughs> during the recession, I was working in London and an office job and I just like, I really wanted to connect to that, that original dream that I had as a child. I, I'd never really considered the the route of a commercial airline pilot because mm -hmm. it's, um, it's actually really expensive to train them. Yeah. From the government at all it's basically classed as like a, a driving license there's no student loan eligibility or anything so it's much more expensive um, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah so um so yeah in 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 the end it was about 130,000 pounds that needed to be raised and the airlines used to sponsor you and of course this race yeah. that, um, that we've seen means that there's no help from the, the sector in that regard anymore so so yeah i, I got a, a bank loan out and did my private pilot's license and that was the beginning of my journey, really. I spent five years pay-as-you-go 
you know, building up hours, working part time. My, my mm. family got behind me and um, they my, my dad remortgaged the house. My mom and dad remortgaged the house. My nan helped me out. And, you know, I felt really grateful to have the support of a family that was largely still struggling uh, financially, but really wanted to help me achieve this dream. So. So yeah, five years after training, I went into working as a flying instructor because the airline mm-hmm. industry was still recovering from the 2008. Oh, okay, yeah. And um, and then yeah, I got my break onto the Airbus with a Bulgarian company, and I was flying mm-hmm. out um, uh, Reykjavik, Keflavik in in Iceland, um, and uh, you know, I was was really absolutely just loving every every day of so-called work you know and then a, a year into that I finally got the break with Thomas Cook a UK airline yes and um, I thought the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders then because I knew that sort of the whole world would be any career opportunity would be opened up then from from getting that sort of uh, experience and Thomas Cook was a great company and um, just a few years into that I think three years into working for them I actually had my medical revoked and um, you know that was uh due to some gut trouble actually but whilst I was grounded I went traveling hypocritically I used my staff travel benefits and yeah backpacking in Peru and you know of course flew over there business class with British Airways and I paid like a hundred pounds for my ticket just to tax it was ridiculous and you know I got to got to like Machu Picchu and just saw just thousands of tourists everywhere mm-hmm. and rubbish and everyone's scrambling to get a selfie and you know, I'd just done this lavish trek on the way there, like three days trekking through the mountains and, you know, meeting these communities up in the Quechua community that have nothing materially, but were really happy and just living in harmony with nature. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was sort of really waking up and uh, I went to this place called Rainbow Mountain, which was 100 meters lower than Everest base camp. Mm-hmm. And it had just been so-called discovered because the snow had melted on top. And I'm, I'm up there and the guide's saying like, Peru's one of the first countries to be hit by the climate crisis yeah and i couldn't help just feel how like bittersweet this was that i could yeah. actually see this beautiful mountain but the reality is it, it should have been covered in snow and um that was the seed that really planted for me and i didn't realize at the time i think i spent a couple more years in denial um mm. but the rise of extinction rebellion was happening in london mm. i felt really compelled to understand the science so that become a new obsession if you like um I, i've I transfer uh, to a, a plant-based and then a vegan diet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was starting to connect the dots. And then I got bitten by a tick in, in a London park, Richmond Park, and diagnosed with Lyme disease. Oof. And it transpires this is much more common due to our milder winters and our warmer summers. So, mm. you know, it was almost like nature was trying to wake me up to this impending sort of uh, dystopian future, it seems, this trajectory that we're on um, currently. And I couldn't. I couldn't get away from it. I, I wanted to go back into the industry to pay yeah. off my debts, but then COVID happened, and I just I just couldn't sit by mm-hmm. as, a, as you know a bystander anymore. And I could see a need for workers in carbon heavy industry to be represented. They weren't being represented in the climate movement. Yeah. And so yeah, I got talking to one of the co-founders of XR, and they put me through spokesperson training. And next, so I've just got a boat going past them on the canal. And yeah, it's uh you know. I stepped into becoming a spokesperson and quite, got quite heavily involved in climate activism. I've been arrested a few times now and, you know, unfortunately I can't return to that that dream job, but my conscience wouldn't allow it in the, with the current way in which the airline industry and government are continuing to yes. move towards growth and essentially betraying us, you know, the, not just the employees, but, you know, general mm. as well. So um, that's hence why I kind of set up safe landing 
and that organically grew just out of concerned aviation workers who I met within the environmental movement, mainly like partly mental health support and, you know, just kind of, you know, be able to say things that was quite difficult to say at that time. At the beginning, like three years ago, climate denial was still a mainstream narrative in the media. Of course. So, yeah, Safe Land has been a, a huge uh, asset, really. And, and there's some wonderful people that, you know, trying to do what they can, both from within and without just to yeah hold the leaders to account and make sure that the truth is filtering through because the reality compared to the greenwash is is quite different yeah so you see safe landing more as like a almost like a like a safe space for people from the aviation sector be it current or former to connect to to exchange ideas but also to push for more sustainability within the entire sector yeah absolutely um i believe that when we general public currently rely on mainstream media for information on the climate crisis and government and both of those pillars are failing in terms of you know relaying the peer-reviewed climate science so um, we see through through sort of connecting and shared vulnerability um, and also looking at various airline policies and we mm -hmm. can you know find a way to understand the reality of the limits of technology essentially and the dangers of growth, how that could yeah. sort of pose um, a, a much bigger crash to the industry than what we saw during the pandemic, if it's allowed to, because they want to triple their emissions by 2050. That's yes. a real, you know, that's a reality. Um, that's a direction of travel. And we flew 4 billion passengers in 2019. So, you know, that's half, it, it should be half the world's population, mm. but only two to 4% of people fly globally annually yeah so it's a very small percentage <laughs> yeah now the typical comment everybody gets usually when they're talking about the aviation sector's impact on the on the climate crisis from people who are not that deep in the topic is well why does the aviation sector actually matter uh, after all if you just do a quick google search it gives you that it roughly accounts for two to three percent of all greenhouse gas emissions are there more pressing topics is that really the the, the big problem when, when somebody comes up to you with exactly such a comment wh why do you say no the, the aviation sector needs to be tackled we need to take action now yeah thank you and, and it, as you're quite right it is a one of the most frequent there's almost two um narratives that you can take and, and sort of speaking of that two percent really minimalizes the, mm -hmm. the the issue and the reality is, even if we just looked at that two or three percent of CO2, not including the non-CO2 effects, which can heat Earth at a rate up to three times out of CO2 yeah. alone. So if we just look at the CO2, then even by 2050, the airline industry could account for a quarter of CO2 emissions because mm -hmm. of its growth and, and its inability to decarbonize. Um, so that would be the most polluting sector by 2050. So even if we looked at it in that context, it's significant. But furthermore, when, when we think that over 80% of the world's people have never even stepped foot on an aircraft, you yeah. know, then we can really understand what a privilege it is. And in the West, where we've grown up with this kind of birthright to just step on a plane, you know, business travelers fly most of them behind that as academics. So it's really ingrained in our culture. Um, and essentially, when 1% of the population creates 50% of global aviation emissions annually, um, the, the thing that really stuck out most for me was the United Nations have said that by 2030 to reach our, our goals, uh, you know, whether 
let's not get into whether 1.5 is achievable or not. I don't think it is, but to sort of to stay below the Paris Agreement, um, there was a report that said we should each be emitting no more than two tons of CO2 by 2030 per, per person globally. Mm. Now, when I flew to Bangkok from London and back, yes, um, that that flight alone as an individual in economy cost me three and a half tons of CO2. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a ton and a half over my entire annual budget as an individual. Now, it is a systemic issue, so we don't want to put all the blame on the individual. But at the end of the day, you know, we do have to be, from from my perspective, you know, changing your diet and flying much less. Or, yeah. You know, they're, they're the two most significant things we can do as individuals, as well as kind of moving your bank account and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is a small fraction and maybe like throwing that number around. But if we look at the UK as an example as well, I think it's more like 15 percent annually because we fly most per capita than any other country on the world, you know, you know, in the world. So, um, yeah, it is an issue and it is um, we could say we're living in the belly of the beast in that regard. So, yeah. Now, you briefly already touched upon the question of. Is it individual behavior or corporate responsibility who needs to take the lead specifically now for the aviation sector? So obviously everybody as an individual needs to do their part in reducing their emissions, especially in the developed countries where our carbon emissions, carbon footprint, as it's called, um, is way, way higher than the, the actual carbon footprint per capita. But who do you think needs to ultimately step up because of course the the airlines themselves they need to to find sustainable solutions to keep their businesses running um so do you see that as the next step that needs to happen or do you rather see like a big consumer i don't know outrage pressuring those airlines to take those steps um i think the reality of the situation is that the the industry can't do what's required to reduce mm-hmm. emissions because we're talking degrowth as being the only policy that would work at this at okay. time. So it needs to be implemented it, to, to see the changes that are required. We need government uh, policy. And there's some really good tools that we could use, like a frequent flyer tax levy. At the mm-hmm. moment, aviation fuel is completely tax free. So yeah. essentially, we're ta- as taxpayers, we're subsidizing, you know, that that sector, which is largely from the most affluent people and families that fly most that are benefiting, especially like private jet users as well. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm cautious to say it's like either or. I think both and is required because I can see the the ripple effect of us as individuals making change and having those conversations with friends and family. You know, it, it does it does help change culture and and especially when it's so problematic and, and such a big part of our I hate the word carbon footprint because I know mm. it's I know it's made by the oil exactly. industry to make us feel bad and you know, but I think in this time, um, I often, you know, imagine what um, in 2030, 2050, you know, what I'm, how I might be able to live with myself, you know, knowing what I know now with the actions I'm taking in this moment. Mm. We, we know the trajectory that we're on. So we just, I think it's more a case of targeting frequent flyers more than any, anything, which, which is a very small percentage of the population. Mm. Um, or making the frequent flyers pay their fair share so we can at least put money towards, um, you know, helping the industry become as sustainable as possible, which is a mammoth task. Yeah. So you would like to see 
basically price increases specifically targeting those frequent travelers because otherwise if we increase the prices for everybody the people let's say the rich however you want to define it that can pay those prices anyways would ultimately just cause that basically aviation is not no longer something that at least most of society in, in developed countries can afford but all only the the rich would would ultimately go against social justice especially saying climate climate crisis is also a social justice topic right yeah absolutely and, and you know the aviation industry when it first came around it was an activity for the upper and middle class you know it was completely mm. inaccessible so it's worth recognizing what a wonderful thing aviation has been in, in how it's connected the world and the cultures and but um yeah the reality is now we need less less we need to degrow in in the so-called global north and mm. allow for essential infrastructure development in countries that need it because i think there is an essential need for aviation yeah but, but doing it you know just jumping on a flight for that weekend break and without a second thought that's really the culture that needs to be tackled so um so yeah um there was another point but it slipped out my mind so <laughs> oh, no worries no worries do you see that shift happening when you when you look at society as a whole especially in the global north do you see that shift happening because personally i would say that shift is more and more happening especially with younger generations um obviously being conscious about their consumption and then also being conscious about their flights and their diet but ultimately the young generations won't be the ones that can solve the climate crisis on their own so we will need to to see that shift also with the older generations without blaming anybody for the crisis itself um, but we need to see that shift into within the entire society yeah absolutely and i think like if we use covid as an example we can see how um with the right government messaging yes um you know pu public behavioral change can be radically shift overnight um, of course we're not calling for anything as, mm -hmm. as a lockdown but you know, this is all entirely possible if there was a political will or, or, or a government that served the people and not the sort of corporate interests of their their rich mates. So mm -hmm. we, we advocate for workers assemblies. So we, you know, and citizens assemblies so we can really empower ordinary people through uh, democratic processes to, to have all of the information both for and against from key stakeholders. So yeah. like a jury service, they can come to common sense conclusions and and have that as an integral part of our political system rather than a vote every four or five years and um, you know mandates being ignored and um, the people feeling quite powerless so I think yeah you're right and obviously more young people are uh, taking action but if yeah if there was stronger messaging from government and people our, our older, the older generation fully understood the impacts and you know at the end of the pandemic the whole sort of vaccine um green passport system it was yes. for me it just felt like a way of kickstarting the airline industry you know like you either got the, the freedom to travel or not and, mm. and you know and it's yeah there seems to be ingrained in the politics and quite a strong lobby uh overall uh, alongside the oil sector because a lot of airlines don't make that much money so yeah then board members sit on airlines and oil companies and it feels like a bit of a pipeline you know absolutely now when we then look at safe landing and the community you've built what do you see which which kind of people join safe landing are those 
not only from a younger, older generation perspective, but also are those current members of the industry? Are those former members? What is their role? Is it mostly airline pilots? Is it also engineers? Who's part of the community and how, how are they driving action within? Yeah, thank you. We m mostly community members are still working within the sector, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. the, the few of us, the few of us that aren't working in the sector now have the ability to speak to media, whereas there's actually quite strict gagging clauses and um, stuff okay. that prohibit. So we, you know, it's, we try to, if we can speak to the media, honour the voices of the people that can't speak, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then also through meeting up, um, yeah, we've got pilots. Uh, the other co-founder of Finley is a former Rolls-Royce engineer, so he'd mm -hmm. set up head of he was head of sustainability. I set up an employee sustainability group uh, within Rolls-Royce, and there's cabin crew members, air traffic controllers. We've even recently had a, a, a rocket scientist join us and add in a whole new level of yes, understanding of to not just the tropopause and the trop the troposphere that where we live, but but up into the stratosphere as mm. well. And, especially with non-CO2 impacts of these activities. So it's a really nice collaboration and um, seems to be gaining more and more traction. So um, we hope that continues and um, we can hope to build that grassroots momentum. We have been working strongly on lobbying the unions because we've yeah. found that in the UK we've got Balper Pilots Union. They have an environmental study group. I was actually evicted from that sort of um, two, three years ago because they were uncomfortable talking about growth and you know some of the policy requirements needed but slowly but surely they're coming to see more and more that you know we, we, we've got to take this seriously and, and aviation is a, a significant mm -hmm. part of the problem so i think if we see that unions really take on board the message of the scientists as opposed to repeating industry narratives then we can make significant change and we do see a, a mass mobilization of unions currently yeah which is quite promising. So as, as well as the UK, we, we're connected to people in Europe and the US and other places around the world. So hopefully it continues because ultimately we do need international action because if we if we put a jet fuel tax in the UK and it's not replicated in other countries and it causes competition. Absolutely. Uh, and people could tank a fuel from other countries, which is yeah. for the environment. It's a good global, global effort. Um, now, you, you mentioned at the beginning that quite a couple of your members are still part of the aviation industry. Isn't that, um, I would say, an easy angle for any sort of critics of the entire community to say, well, you're just part of the problem anyways. How, what is your right to, to criticize and demand more climate action? How do you, how do you encounter that? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a good point. And, um, you know, from my own experience of, I've been diagnosed with something called eco-anxiety. Yeah. It's, it's essentially, you know, a perfectly rational and healthy response for any human being to an existential threat when you understand the science. This isn't something that can be pathologized as I have a mental health problem. It's just, uh, you know, for anyone that feels this and as you know, we hope that we, we do feel things mm. then we should be worried. And we, you know, we should feel betrayed and angry at our dream for lying to us because the greenwash is is literally saying the opposite to what they're yeah. doing on the inside and as is their policy they're not they're not reducing their total emissions you know aircraft continues to get more efficient but total emissions still go up because of the growth so when people within the sector are left with this conflict it's not like they for me as a pilot i didn't go to flight school and learn about the climate crisis as part of my training i had no idea mm. i think when you understand the science what you 
do with it next is important and you know ultimately no one sh should be blamed and shamed for trying to take the courageous steps to understand what's required and to even be the unpopular person within the company that they're working in or having those unpopular conversations in the in the flight deck or with their colleagues trying mm. to speak this truth it's absolutely necessary that people that can think critically and understand the science are still within the sector so that it actually becomes a part of the internal culture and things can you know this can be related to management and and, and more pressure can be put on these companies and and you know i think that the airlines are feeling that pressure mm. I think they're they're really concerned because yeah um, but unfortunately what we see like you know, with shareholder profit, they'll just want to maximise the profit to the last second, then they'll sell out their shares and, you know, the thing crashes and the workers are first out the door. So if the workers really understand that if we want to ensure a sustainable future for aviation, we need to be taking actions to mitigate emissions now. Mm -hmm. It's a mental model trained in, we mitigate risks. If, if we, if you know, if we take those steps now, then we should, there'll be less flying, but it should ensure long-term careers and uh, longevity to the industry. So it's, it's in all of our interests. Yeah. Now, talking about the future in general of the aviation industry, you, you yourself on the Safe Landing website state that there are, in your opinion, no technologies available that can be developed and scaled in the necessary timescales to prevent dangerous levels of global warming. On the other side, we see companies such as Zero Avia building hydrogen combustion engines or Airbus announcing their ultimately climate neutral things that they want to build. Where do you see the entire industry heading? Um, do you think we don't we won't have the technologies available and there will ultimately only be the way for degrowth? Or do you see that degrowth is for the aviation sector is now part of it? until we are able to 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 fly on a more climate friendly only net zero level yeah so what um you know the same as the tobacco industry the same as your industry the airline industry have adopted the same delaying tactics so we go we move from denial to delaying and mm -hmm. let's let's be real like in 2020 there was a bbc article with uh, the airline industry were claiming to be looking at hydrogen technology uh, sorry, yeah. the year 2000, um, so 20, almost, yeah, 22 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so like this isn't like a new technology. They've, they've, they've known about hydrogen for a long time. And they just didn't move on it because the cost of creating the hydrogen compared to kerosene, the current fuel, is between five and ten times the current cost. So economically, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It can't be scaled. Um, without using renewable energy to make it generally green yes and um, we don't have enough renewable energy to power basic infrastructure let alone you know you know like the key infrastructure of hospitals and housing so let alone you know a, a relatively luxury activity like like flying so um also we we've we've hear we, we hear these narratives around so-called sustainable aviation fuel and yes. they'll, they'll just talk until they're blue in the face about this this fuel but it isn't a fuel it's an umbrella term which mm -hmm. is saying something which is actually a lie because the vast majority of these feedstocks within so-called sustainable aviation fuel are not sustainable that, that includes biofuel which you'd need massive amounts of land that mm -hmm. we don't have because it's already utilized in animal agriculture sector um there's you know synthetic fuel in there that again you need 
a massive amounts of renewable energy and hydrogen as well. So uh, they're, they're trying to focus on like municipal waste. So they're encouraging more waste to be produced so they can essentially burn it, which saves them money to ship it off to another country for it to be dumped there. Yeah. Uh, also like um, vegetable oils and stuff, but that's already a feedstock which is fully utilized in the ground transport network. So to take it out of lorries and put it in jet engines, which is the least efficient place to burn it, yeah. it's just sensical. But you know, they're, they're of course talking about it. They're trying to set up flights where you have one flight taking 100% so-called SAF, but mm-hmm. this it just can't, it just can't be scaled. And um, I think by 2030, the industry is hoping to have like five or 10% of this fuel yeah. in, you know, in the actual often probably growth by then, given it doubles every 15 years, air traffic numbers historically mm-hmm. would outstrip any benefit again. So it's just a fallacy and, and any technology that is being worked on now in the drawing board process, it's still got to be manufactured, tested, certified, and then sold and put into, you know, sold and put into the out mass production. So this is a 15, 20 year process. Yeah. If we continue to create the same airframes now with the same engines, they're not fit for the future or carbon budget, then and each aircraft is designed to spend 25 years or so in service at least. So these aircraft will still be flying in past 2050 into 2060 or so and still polluting in the same way. So it's, you know, the, the reality is the airline industry had an opportunity to move a long time ago. Yes. And they didn't because of cost. And that's understandable. Now they want more taxpayer money to to build the so-called SAF infrastructure, which just really is sort of converting oil refineries and you know, there's just lots of greenwash around it, and it's just a way of, you know, the government are talking about um, jet zero, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially they're still using carbon offsetting as well, which is just in no way, shape, or form an effective method of climate mitigation. Leads, you know, bio crops as well, uh, biofuel leads to land grabbing and stuff, and indigenous people's rights. So yeah, there's uh, ultimately the only way we can reduce the emissions in aviation yeah. right now is to do less for the next sort of 10 or 20 years mass you know focus on the technology and Mm -hmm. get to a point where we've at least proven that we can stay below you know the paris agreement and you know maintain a stable climate because ultimately why do we fly we we fly because we love earth and we love visiting these beautiful places and you know we're looking at potentially that 99 percent of a coral reef dead by 2050 would be flying abroad to the Caribbean to witness the decimation of our natural world. You know, the Maldives yeah. under and the sea level rises. So we've got, to, we've got to tell a new story, I think. And that's kind of, we need to decelerate our lives. And it, it's cliche, but it, it is the journey, not just a destination. And I believe that by low carbon means, we can really immerse ourselves in the, in the journey and make it a part of our holiday and the, and the cultures on the way, you know? Yeah. So... Before we come to an end, you say, I fully agree, we will need the work from from people from within the sector to push for more sustainability and push for ultimately uh, to get the aviation sector to meet the climate uh, Paris Agreement targets. So what what is, again, coming back to safe landing, what is next? What is What are the next steps for safe landing? Where, where do you see it heading, let's say, in the next 12 months, two years? What's your vision for the entire, for the entire community? Thank you. Yeah, I think, um, as I said, the, the a key area of focus, the ideal for us would to be have 
have something like a workers assembly because mm -hmm. as it stands if there was say a vote that went through a union about climate action the people voting currently would only be able to vote on the current understanding of their climate science and the information and if you google aviation sustainability there's a lot of like industry sponsored websites that are giving a very different view to the safe landing view which is as, as scientific as we can possibly make it so but you know it's, it's belittling and um, dismissing the size of the issue so we believe that through workers assemblies having experts both for and against climate scientists and key stakeholders and people are actually having time to sit down paid and understand these these issues and then making a collective decision is the best sort of democratic tool that could be used and we'd support like a sortition process ideally that members of the aviation sector from all parts of it would be represented not just pilots yeah. you know the more privileged end of the spectrum so um yeah that's something we're trying to campaign for and, and that fits into a wider kind of political movement within the uk of deliberative democracy and and calling on national and and global citizens assemblies as, as a as a tool for, to empower people in this in this critical moment for life on earth so um so yeah we will continue to understand um you know the new technologies that are being proposed you know mm -hmm. for instance they're trying to promote these ev tow aircraft which take off vertically they're like large drones and it's like yeah. the most the least inefficient way you can take off which is vertically we're using these three or four seater aircraft to probably mm. transfer people to Heathrow all these big airports anyway and it's just another form of luxury unnecessary yeah. air transport which isn't even then included in the aviation carbon budget because they're trying to make it into a new sector so yeah we need to be very vigilant because um, mm. the current economic system can only prioritize profit above all else and can't take into consideration health well-being and the environment so um, obviously we need radical change and ultimately we all are in family or have families and yeah this is a real crunch point so um yeah this yeah i think you know coming back to that aviation analogy um you know if we're if we're en route we all want to like fly to our destination Mm -hmm. But if we encounter severe weather or problem en route, then without second thought, we would divert and change course to ensure a safe landing and a trajectory, which means that we can continue to fly into the future, not one that would cause fatalities and and risk life. So it's just about being pragmatic. I think that's a that's a very very good comparison on how how we we have to ultimately tackle the climate crisis. So firstly. Thank you for, for the work you guys are doing at Safe Landing and pushing for it at the aviation sector. And also, thank you for being part of the Green Minds podcast. Incredible to have you on, Todd. Um, thank you. I wish you all the best with with Safe Landing and to push for for what you for what, what you strive for. Thanks so much for having us on. And um, yeah, if anyone's wanting to find out more info, info it's safe-landing.org. And, and yeah, feel free to reach out to us if you're in the industry as well. Todd, thank you very much. And goodbye. See ya. Cheers. Bye-bye.